Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide to explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. Today's episode continues our multi-part series on the Ozarks. Sure, you think you know about the Ozarks, the home of Branson, the Bald Numbers, and the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Well, in this series, we'll talk about the Ozarks, a region covering roughly half of Missouri as a cultural identity as well as a physical place. So, come along for a trip to the Ozarks. Our guest is Sarah K. Eskridge. She holds a Ph.D. from Louisiana State University and presently serves as an instructor at Western Governors University. Her recent book, Rube Tube, CBS and Rural Comedy of the 60s, was published by the University of Missouri Press in 2019. In it, Eskridge examines the rise and fall of so-called rural comedies, several of which had ties to Missouri and Paul Henning, as television networks like CBS sought to rebrand themselves during the turbulent decade of the 1960s. Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the origins of your project? What really got you interested not only in this topic, but also kind of the, the way that you study it and look at it? Well, I am from the South, and so I have always been very interested in the way that people of the South have been portrayed in the media. And it, in graduate school, I was in this class, and we were reading a book about sort of the South during the, the civil rights era and the Cold War. And it just struck me as a, a bit of an outsider's perspective. You know, even with academics, you often find that um, the way that the South uh, is approached, it often kind of comes from this outsider's perspective that's not always necessarily um, sympathetic. And not that I think that Southerners need uh, nothing but sympathy, but I do find that a lot of times there's a condescending tone to it. Um, and so I was really interested to kind of study that from a Southerner's perspective and to kind of look at more modern ways that Southerners have been portrayed in the media. Um, and so I started looking into different different kinds of movies and shows and books. And I, you know, I started looking into rural comedy, which is not something that I grew up with at all. And uh, I had never really watched uh, the Andy Griffith show or the Beverly Hillbillies. And I just really started getting interested in that. And it became a rabbit hole that opened up into, it was not just about the South, but it became this whole sprawling drama about the Cold War and sort of network politics. And uh, it went from there. It's kind of interesting to think about, you know, when you said you, you hadn't really grown up on some of these shows and some people might look at this and say, oh, well, I would watch a show like that and that would draw my interest into a larger project. But thinking about kind of the research involved with a book like this, um, where are you going? What archives did you go to? Did you have to watch these shows? What, what were you kind of doing to kind of get the foundation laid for the overall project? Well, I, I looked at a number of different sources. I was uh, lucky enough to have an incredible mentor at uh, my graduate institution who purchased me basically the entire catalog of rural comedy um, and, and purchased every season of every show that we could get our hands on. And so I spent about a year and a half spending several hours a day watching television, which sounds maybe more fun than it actually was um, when you're actually 
you know, having to kind of take notes on the episodes, it's much more work than I thought. So I thought I was getting into something that was going to be like a really fun project, but you know, even something fun when you have to do it every day, it becomes work. Um, in addition to that, uh, there was an incredible resource from the uh, uh, television like, or Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. They have an incredible online database of oral histories and interviews that they've done um, over the last 20 or 30 years with basically everyone they could find in the television industry. And so there were some incredible interviews with producers, directors, writers, actors. Um, so that was an invaluable source. I got a fellowship at UCLA, um, so I was able to spend several weeks in their archives uh, looking at the various um, television items that they have. They have a great television catalog uh, out there, and so I was able to look through that in addition to about 30 years worth of TV guide, um, which also is very useful. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, when looking at the political side of things, I ended up going to the National Archives and to the Library of Congress, and they had a lot of information pertaining to various um, legal battles that CBS had to fight over the years pertaining to their programming. It's interesting. Um, in looking at you know CBS, people tend to have this general idea, you know Walter Cronkite, you know the '60s and '70s and the '80s. Uh, sometimes CBS gets this kind of identifier of being kind of wholesome family entertainment but really as you discussed kind of early on there is an image problem for cbs as it comes into the into the cold war era that it has to kind of remedy it has to fix uh so how did cbs shift from being known as the you know quote-unquote communist broadcasting system to eventually known as what people called it as the country broadcasting system well, um, it's such an interesting story because I think CBS started out, they kind of considered themselves the Tiffany Network. Um, they had an incredible news, uh, a, a newscast uh, led by Edward R. Murrow. Um, they were known for really uh, a lot of hard-hitting journalism. And when television really starts to become popular in American households, they tend to not only have this really great news programming, but they also tend to, um, you know, they're kind of looking at documentary television, they're sort of kind of really showing some really uh, highbrow entertainment that's not necessarily um, catching all of the masses, but, you know, they're trying to hit a little bit of everything, but they really do get this reputation as sort of being the, the class of, of the field, as it were. Um, they're, uh, and, the, and the people that they employ, as it turns out, um, when the Red Scare happens, they have a higher than average chance of being the employer for some people who are on some pretty, um, pretty extensive and pretty well broadcast blacklists. Um, there are a number of people, grassroots groups that are going to publish the names of everyone that they can find in entertainment that have connections to communism or what they perceive as connections to communism and uh, a majority of them or not a majority but you know about half of them come from cbs um and so that's how they get this reputation as being the communist broadcast network um and so they as they move away from that they try a couple different things they try to they ju definitely jump on the westerns bandwagon which is incredibly popular with all networks um and it gets to the point where cbs has about maybe a quarter of their lineup, um, their entire lineup is having to do with Westerns. Um, that's great, but parents start to complain about the violence that comes through those shows and what kind of impact that's having on the nation's youth. And so you start to see 
um, congressional hearings um, and CBS is having to go before Congress to talk about, you know, why are you putting so much violence on television? And then they also go with the quiz show. Um, they, they go with the quiz show uh, craze, which is, again, across all three networks. CBS is not alone in promoting that. And that seems great, too, because that seems like a great form of Cold War propaganda because you're showing, oh, look at the, you know, intelligence is fun and intelligence will win you money. And look how smart Ameri these, um, you know, these wonderful American heroes are. And then it kind of turns out that those people were given the answers and that the shows were rigged. And so once again, CBS is being hauled before Congress to explain why they participated in this sham um, that kind of snowed the American public. So everything that they turn to, it seems to eventually blow up in their faces. And then they kind of take a page out of ABC's book um, in the late 50s, early 1960s, they had a very popular show on ABC called The Real McCoys, which was a rural comedy, a fish out of water story about a family that moved from uh, kind of a, some, I believe it's not really necessarily clear where they're coming from, but it's clear that they're coming from probably the Ozarks. And they moved to California to start a new life. So it's kind of a precursor to the Beverly Hillbillies. And that show is very popular. And uh, and uh, the person who was in charge of programming at CBS in 1960, James Aubrey, he had come from ABC. He sees the popularity of that show. He uh, and they they've got this new person that they've discovered named Andy Griffith, and they think you know we can do something similar to this. We can kind of take those Western elements of the sheriff, um, you know, and as kind of the force of good, and we can kind of put that in a rural setting, and maybe we can kind of mix the Southern element with the Western element and have like in a bottle and that turned out to be true and so they st for from 1960 to 1965 every year they put a new show at least one new rural comedy on the air and all of them are in the top 20 until they go off the air that's an impressive streak to not only yeah. kind of <laughs> strike lightning with that or strike gold but to continue it on as you said for several years in a row and i think in some ways they're probably looking at their audience and trying to figure out one how to repair this image to how to replicate what other networks are doing, uh, but also kind of thinking about, you know, what people might be interested in and what they're watching. Uh, but did geographic and really regional viewing interests, as we think of them today with, you know, where numbers are coming from, who's watching certain things and things like that, was that really driving these programming attempts in these early years uh, of television, especially for the country focus? Well, it, it's an interesting story because demographics didn't really come into vogue until the late 60s, um, and the, the types of demographic information that they had, um, it was fairly vague. So when you first have television programming, it is very demographically driven because the programming is coming primarily out of New York City, which is one of the most diverse uh, communities in the United States. And so the, the people who have television um, are going to be primarily in New York or in the New York area, so there's a very high incidence of immigrants, you have a lot of African Americans, you have people from all over the world um, kind of gathered in this one place. And so that television programming in the early years, it tends to reflect that diversity. You have shows with African Americans, you have shows with Italian Americans, there's a, uh, Jewish people, uh, a number of different kinds of immigrants. And that's reflected um, even with Milton Berle, who was one of TV's first stars. Um, he tended to reflect a more um, old school vaudevillian uh, aspect that was 
still very much, it, it was very New York centric. Um, it definitely played better with people in the Northeast. And you find that as there are more stations popping up, um, more stations getting licenses across the country, the FCC is starting to spread into the South um, and allowing licenses in the South. And so that New York centric viewing is not playing as well in the heartland and in the South. And so they do have to start spreading out and thinking of lowest common denominator. You know, uh, if you've got two or three channels, which, which thing is going to be the least concerning for all involved. Um, and so they start looking for, you know, it's not necessarily they're looking at demographics, they're looking at, you know, what is going to be pleasing across the board. Um, and so that's part of the reason why rural comedy seems so great, because kids can enjoy it. it there's definitely nothing controversial or upsetting that you're going to see on a rural comedy. Um, parents can watch it with their kids. But also, most rural comedies are airing at about 9 p.m. Central. So that timing, especially on the East Coast, is kind of putting it out of the range of small children. So adults are watching this as well. Before we return to our conversation, here's Danielle Griego to talk about the My Missouri 2021 Photograph Project. The Missouri Bicentennial provides an occasion for reflecting upon an increasing understanding of various aspects of the state's cultural and geographic landscape. Missouri 2021 invites professional and amateur photographers to capture and share unique and meaningful aspects of place in Missouri. Through the My Missouri 2021 Photograph Project, 200 photographs will be selected to be part of the permanent Missouri Bicentennial Collection at the State Historical Society of Missouri. Together, these images will create a snapshot of the state's physical and cultural landscape during its bicentennial that will be available to researchers, teachers, and students, and the public for generations to come. To learn more about the My Missouri 2021 Photograph Project, please visit Missouri2021.org slash my-missouri. Now, you mentioned kind of some of these shows are going to be non-controversial, but they're going to take place kind of in rural areas or in some cases in the South with Andy Griffith. And yet the South in the 1960s, uh, the image that is appearing on news channels anyways at that point, news shows, uh, is one of kind of the larger confrontation and, and divide over the civil rights struggle. So was there criticism? Did critics attack CBS for shows that focus on kind of this wholesome Southern life without controversy and ignoring kind of the reality of what is going on in some aspects in parts of the South? Well, I'll tell you what, I can't say for sure that it didn't happen, but if they did that, I couldn't find it. Um, I, I looked at a lot of popular publications at the time to look for some sort of review that kind of reflected that sort of complete lack of connection with reality, and they don't. Um, there's a lot of reasons that the critics pan rural comedy, but that disconnection is not one of them. And so that leads me to believe that um, that disconnection was actually a feature and not a bug in these shows, um, that this was a form of escapism, um, that this was not meant to connect them to the South of the 60s. But even uh, Andy Griffith himself said, this was not the South of the 60s that we were trying to portray. It's the South of the 30s. Um, and so it's really, in a, like even the show, which it sparked a lot of nostalgia even at the time, but it's for a nostalgia for what he perceived uh, to be the South of his own youth. Um, Mount uh, Mayberry is supposed to be based on Mount Airy, North Carolina, which is where Andy Griffith grew up. Um, and so that's his version of that. You know, Mount Airy had a very active NAACP chapter in the 1960s, and it's not it's less than an hour away from Greensboro. And uh, the Andy Griffith show aired 
only a couple months after the Greensboro sit-ins. Um, so there's a very active civil rights movement happening in North Carolina, um, and, that, and that was active there even when Andy Griffith was younger, but he did not necessarily know about that, or ch- and if he did, he chose not to portray that at all. Interesting to think about. Uh, yeah, in a way, CP activism in the South, yeah, at a time when he would have been growing up in the 30s, uh, and then kind of that not being reflective, certainly in the show. But thinking of the Andrew Griffith show and, and it's being known as being kind of connected with North Carolina, <clears throat> and a lot of this kind of rural television focuses on, you know, a place like North Carolina, but then you think of the Beverly Hillbillies going to California, or in some cases, other shows depicting, you know, rural life versus city life. Uh, but you mentioned with the real McCoys earlier about this kind of people possibly coming from the Ozarks. Um, were there a lot of shows that depicted kind of Ozark culture or, or people coming from the Ozarks uh, and putting that as kind of a popular location setting for some of these shows? Yeah, well, um, uh, Paul Henning was responsible for almost all of the uh, sort of Ozark uh, centric programming that was on CBS. Um, he had a trilogy and he called it his rural trilogy. It was the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Petticoat Junction, and Green Acres. Um, and so all of these are, in theory, supposed to exist in the same universe. And that was not necessarily connected. It was not connected to the real McCoys in any way. I think Paul Henning might have written something for the real McCoys at some point, but um, he was not heavily involved in that show at all. Um, there were a couple of shows prior to that that um, kind of featured brief kind of cameo appearances by people who were supposed to be from the Ozarks. Um, I know that Bob Cummings uh, had a recurring character on his program, uh, sort of a, a batty uncle who lived in the Ozarks and flew a biplane from World War I, um, and he would sort of fly in for an episode and then leave. Um, also, I, I Love Lucy uh, featured Tennessee Ernie Ford, um, who I think was supposed to be an Ozark character, um, and he was featured for a couple episodes, which is really unusual for I Love Lucy because they never had a guest star come on more than once, um, and I think Tennessee Ernie Ford was on two or three times, so that character must have been very popular. Um, so those characters, when they show up on other shows, they're very popular, which may have been why um, Paul Henning you know, was kind of drawing on his own childhood in Missouri and felt like that could be potentially comic gold. It's maybe just difficult to answer, but is there a particular reason that you found of why an Ozark character was kind of portrayed in some of these shows and not like, let's say, a, a Southerner a stereotype or a, so you could think a Southwest or something like that? Is there a reason why Ozark was a kind of a theme character to come out of this? I'm not really sure. Um, and it's unclear. I know that with Henning, you know, he's using Ozarks because that's where he's from or that's the connection that he had. Um, or, and if he wasn't directly from there, then he's definitely spe- like spending a lot of time um, in, in the Ozarks. And so he was familiar with it. Um, what we find is that, you know, it's really one of the, in terms of like a place that's maybe hitting that, that sweet spot of being kind of uh, associated with maybe uh, hillbilly culture, southern culture, also kind of midwestern, um, and so it's kind of hitting the sweet spot of the heartland where it's touching, um, you know, kind of a, a large number of demographics at the same time that might make it particularly attractive. Um, I know that Paul Henning considered the, you know, his Ozark characters, he considered Missouri to be definitely southern. I know that Missouri is one of these places where it's kind of an interesting dichotomy where some people do consider it southern and others don't, um, but as far as Henning was concerned, he did consider that Southern, or at least it would kind of ring those bells when people are watching it. 
you would see that and wouldn't necessarily say, okay, well, that's Missouri. You would say, okay, that, that comes across as Southern. That's very true. Yeah. Missouri is the contested space between Southern Midwestern and Western. So it, it certainly it is each person's opinion about how Missouri is defined. So Henning certainly seeing it as Southern would fit into some of the portrayals of characters that he's kind of creating them. Thinking of Paul Henning being a Missourian, someone who is kind of creating characters from Missouri, from the Ozarks for these shows, what is his career path through television at this time? I mean, he has that trilogy you mentioned of Green Acres, the Beverly Hillbillies, um, and uh, Petticoat Junction, uh, but how does he become such a prominent writer and really creator of these shows in the 1960s? Well, you find that rural comedy is, seems to be a very incestuous world. A lot of these folks who become bigger characters, you, you actually find that the writers and the producers and the actors, sometimes they're interchangeable. For example, um, there's a character on Andy Griffith, um, Ernest T. Bass, who is actually a writer on the show, um, and he is, was also a writer on The Real McCoys. And so it's kind of like the writers and the actors, um, they all kind of take on different jobs depending on what show they're on. So with Paul Henning, he was someone who had been sort of a staff writer for some earlier rural comedies, including The Real McCoys, um, and had written a couple episodes. But, you know, as he develops that, it's almost like you kind of get typecast as a writer. Um, and so that's a genre that he kind of demonstrated that he had some, you know, he had, uh, what is the word that I'm looking for? Um, like, he clearly had a gift uh, for writing that, um, and it, because he's in, a, in theory writing what he knew, um, and kind of just emphasizing it and exaggerating it. And so he's taking that expertise, and based on that, um, he said that he kind of developed, he didn't start out developing a trilogy. Um, I think he really got inspired by the real McCoys, quite honestly, because if you look at the Beverly Hillbillies, which is a fish-out-of-water story about a family moving from kind of more eastern or midwest and moving to California um, to start a new life, um, it's kind of the same show. And in fact, there's some imagery in the Beverly Hillbillies that actually comes almost directly from sh uh, shots in the real McCoy. Um, so they've, you know, there's definitely a lot of borrowing from that concept. Um, so, you know, he's on that show, he's writing on that show, and he kind of decides to make, you know, basically his take on the real McCoys um, just on CBS. And uh, that, that ends up being their most popular show. Now, thinking about these shows overall, and certainly there was a long ride of success there in the in the kind of early to mid-1960s, but it couldn't last forever. So how does, there, how does this kind of backlash develop? How does this kind of end to rural comedies start out and what eventually becomes the rural purge uh, by the end of the 1960s? Yeah, well, it's an interesting story, and there's a couple of different things that are happening here. One is that demographics do start becoming more important. So initially, in the early 60s, what they were looking at is number of viewers, just sheer number of viewers. Um, they were looking for that at least 35% market share, which meant that you were dominating the, that three-station market. But as time goes on, they start to realize, well, let's look at who is actually watching, who's buying the products that we're advertising um, on, the, on the commercials um, on these shows. So they start to look at that and they realize, well, we do have a lot of older people um, watching rural comedy. We have a lot of children watching and parents are watching. But in terms of that coveted 18 to 34 demographic, which is just becoming popular um, and just kind of becoming popularized in the ad industry, 
that's not necessarily who's watching. Um, it's not necessarily which markets, because we find that rural comedy was popular across all markets. Um, in fact, more so in the Northwest than in the in the South, even. But um, they found that you know if they want more up, they want upwardly mobile, sort of uh, younger. Uh, professionals, sort of the yuppie market, if you will. And that's not who rural comedy is attracting. They found that that market, they're virtually tuning out altogether um, because they're not really finding the programming that they want. So CBS is starting to push more toward that younger urban market. Um, at the same time, you also have baby boomers who grew up watching rural comedy, but by 1970 or so, a lot of them are approaching adulthood if they're not there or they're in their early 20s. And so they find that that market is coveted because there are more of them um, of that age group than there had ever been before. And so there, and, and of course that number is only going to keep growing in the early 70s as more and more boomers reach adulthood. And they want that boomer market, um, but the boomers seem really played out. They're, they're really jaded. Because these are the same kids that were involved in, you know, they watched those shows and then went to college, participated in the civil rights movement, participated in the anti-war movement, the women's movement, what have you. And they're a little jaded um, by this nostalgic, picture-perfect, you know, these family comedies, these rural comedies that have been dominating TV for the better part of a decade. And... They're not really watching that. They don't connect with it at all. They want something that connects with their reality. And so um, that's partly why you get things like All in the Family, which is more of a, you know, sort of a generational comedy about that generation gap between the younger the younger people and their parents um, who are more from that generation who would rather watch Andy Griffith. Um, and so those two things combined, the, the growing up of the baby boomers and that move toward paying more attention to demographics, those two things sound the death knell of rural comedy. Did any shows survive the rural purge? Did anything make it past 1970, or is it a complete breakdown of all those shows? I think Green Acres made it the longest. I think they made it to maybe 1972. Um, I would have to, I would have to check on that. Um, You might have to check on that. But I think Green Acres made it the longest, um, and they were canceled in 72. But other than that, almost every rural comedy got canceled in one fell swoop over the course of two seasons, uh, 1970 and 1971. Wow. Okay. (laughs) That is quite a substantial cut. Um, What about someone like Paul Henning, since we brought him up before, does he make it through this rural purge and continue on with television, or what is his role after this? He had a production company called Filmways, um, and he did produce other shows other than rural comedies, but they also kind of fell into that market. Um, like, for example, Filmways produced Mr. Ed, which in some ways, I guess, because there's a horse in it, you could say it's semi-rural, but that's not really what people think of when they think of Mr. Ed. Um, he was more producing those um, those comedies that came out in the mid-60s that were sort of more in that green acres mold of, uh, of like there's sort of a surreal element to it. Um, and they usually had kind of a gimmick uh, that they centered around. And so he went on to do a few of those. Um, but honestly, I did not follow his career past the rural purge. So I can't tell you what became of him, unfortunately. I've really enjoyed the book and I, I was going through everything and kind of thinking a lot about what I've heard people talk about growing up in Missouri 
about how some of the characters from these shows had come back to fairs and various events and had this kind of connection to people that they would go to like an airport in Vichy, Missouri, and there'd be, uh, uh, can't think of her name, the grandmother from uh, the Beverly Hillbillies would be at one of the shows there and they would have oh, a, yeah. a meet and greet kind of a signing session and how there was this kind of, even into the 80s and the 90s, there was a still beloved element of people going all this way to travel to these various places to see these people. Well, there's an interesting thing that happens, actually, and there's kind of a little bit of a story behind that, because um, as part of their contracts, a lot of these um, characters that were a lot of these actors that were on the rural comedies, it was actually stipulated that they couldn't do press for the shows unless they were in character. And so a lot of times you would see uh, characters from the Beverly Hillbillies um, or let's see, maybe Petticoat Junction. Um, a lot of times they would sort of show up uh, in character to things. And so you find that they get very much pigeonholes into those roles because they are kind of blurring that line between reality and television. Um, and so it's almost coming across like, okay, well, you know, I actually am Daisy Mae Moses um, from the Ozarks, as opposed to I'm Irene Ryan, a, you know, a, a veteran character actress who has been in dozens of productions. Um, you know, she gets typecast because that's how she's literally presenting herself to the public when she's not on the Beverly Hillbillies because she is required to do so by contract. Um, and so a lot of those characters have trouble finding work afterward, uh, with few notable exceptions, obviously Andy Griffith and um, Buddy Ebsen, they go on to lucrative careers, uh, you know, playing Barnaby Jones and uh, Matlock. But for the most part, those people can only earn a living as those characters going forward. And so they often will make appearances um, and, and doing so throughout most of their lives. Very fascinating to think about that. Yeah. As I, so yeah, I was thinking about, yeah, the, the, the fear of being typecast and how much of a reality that actually was for, for some of these people. Very interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, CBS is literally making it so that you can't not get typecast. Like, they're, they're not giving you any opportunity to, to find and market outside of that character because you have to be that character in public at all times. And when the, when the purge comes, it makes that much more difficult to reinvent yourself and become a new character. Exactly. And it's fortunate that these shows have maintained such popularity over time because it has given those people who might not have been able to find work else. Uh, otherwise, they've been able to kind of continue a career just as a TV personality. That's very true. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, these, I mean, a lot of these shows are, yeah, still on in syndication on, on various channels. I think there's channels now that are just dedicated simply to a lot of the shows from the 60s and the 70s to just running them on constant loop uh, on a daily basis. So I think there's certainly... They live on longer than, in some cases, their original reign. So they have absolutely, and a lot of these shows have um, internet watch group watching groups. Like um, there's an Andy Griffith show, Rewind Watchers Club. Um, there are some that are dedicated to the Beverly Hillbillies. Um, there is a Bible study for the Andy Griffith show, um, so that people can buy that for their Sunday school class. Um, so there's all these different little niches, and then now I've looked on social media, and there's watching groups for all of these. So it's kind of it seems to be transcending the type of media. Um, that's popular for the day. Um, and it's, it's kind of moving with the technology and with the, the social spaces as we create them. Interesting to think about, yeah, in a digital age, how these things are preserved and how they've been not only kind of celebrated and, and preserved, but also how people still remember them and focus on them and study them even into modern day. 
Well, the fascinating thing about it is that, um, you know, the, again, this is not something I grew up with, but virtually everyone that I know has, you know, their grandparents, they watched it with their grandparents or they have some memory of it. And so you've got people who have been watching this for 70 years now. These shows have been on the air. And regardless of generation, they say it reminds me of my childhood. Um, so it seems to, that's three generations. It seems to transcend generation. And regardless of how old you were when you started watching or how old the show was when you started watching, it seems timeless. What is your current project? What are you working on now for, for kind of the steps forward? I am trying to figure out my next steps. I've uh, made some inroads into a biography of Andy Griffith because I think he is just uh, an utterly fascinating character who is sort of um, someone who projects a version of the South that is not really his reality at all. Um, someone who kind of comes across as sort of a, a Southern common sense everyman, but actually he's a very well-educated, shrewd person who is actually not all that nice in real life, um, but that's not his persona at all. And so I've found that fascinating, but um, I'm, I'm still kind of feeling it out. Any suggestions are welcome. Well, thank you very much for joining us today and for being on the podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I'm your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, please check out the State Historical Society of Missouri's website at shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. Thank you.